Okay, Acts chapter 9. We're going to come back to the passage we were in last week. Remember, the Apostle Paul is leaving Damascus. Uh, That didn't go so good for him. He's heading to Jerusalem, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they too attempted to kill him. It seems that wherever Paul would go, people wanted to kill him. Now here... You notice that maybe that sparked something in your memory, the Hellenists. Remember them from Acts chapter 7. This was the same group of people who were the guys who stoned Stephen, the first martyr. And they knew Paul, and Paul knew them, and they knew each other well because Paul was part of the group. He was part of them. These were the people he used to run with before his conversion to Jesus on the Damascus road. So I want you to just think about this with me for a second. Paul knew them. He knew how they were. He knew their propensity for violence. He knew their zealousness against the gospel and their hatred for Jesus. And yet when he comes into Jerusalem, what does he do? Who does he go to? He goes straight to the hardest group of people. He goes straight to them anyway. Look at verse 30. And When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So, again, he's rescued by the disciples. This time they send him to Tarsus. He would end up staying there for about 10 or so years. We're not exactly sure. The book of Galatians tells us it was a long time. And he'll remain there until Barnabas will go to Tarsus and retrieve him and take him to help pastor the church at Antioch. But nonetheless, we left off in verse 31. And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now that verse 31 has really just been working on me for about a month now. And I've been really just praying about, you know, all of the things that happened that created uh, this scenario whereby God's people were just perfectly positioned in in the midst of His will. And about two and a half weeks ago, as I was sort of working on this whole chapter, something really just came to me. You know, the Spirit of God just began to press on me that we needed to have a very particular conversation. And it's from this passage, but it's a conversation that no doubt... If I would have announced last week that we were going to have this conversation, some of you wouldn't be here this morning. You wouldn't have come to church because you don't want to have it. And when we start having it, you're not going to like it. But I just want you to know that we need to have this conversation. It's an important conversation. And it stems from what happens between verses 26 and 28. That when you're reading the text, it just sort of goes along. But if you really think about it, there's a very monumental transition. Look at verse 26. So when Saul comes to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, of course they were afraid of him. Why were they afraid of him? Because think of who Paul was. I mean... This was a guy who was leading the charge to kill him and to persecute him in every way possible. This was somebody who had killed somebody who was very near and dear to this group of people. And their hearts were still tender because of their loss. So you can imagine the way that they felt about Saul in their hearts throughout the course of this time. And, it's, and a long time has passed. We're, we're talking about over three years have passed since the killing of Stephen. And so 
It's been brewing inside of them for years. But when you get to verse 28, the Bible says, So he was with them, coming in and going out. And what the Scripture is telling us is that these Christians, they forgave the Apostle Paul for all that he had done. The Apostle Paul who had arrested them, the Apostle Paul who had abused them and tortured them, who tried to get them to blaspheme the God whom they had given their life to. The Apostle Paul that by his own admission had attempted to kill him. And without pity, both men and women, he sought to do great harm to. Remember this chapter opened... In verses 1 and 2 of Acts 9, Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul hunted these people like wild animals. And in spite of all of this, In spite of all the hurt that Paul had caused them, these Christians at Jerusalem forgave him. Now, forgiveness is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when you're able to see a picture of how two individuals or two groups of people or who were once so at odds have been brought together and mended together and that everything's the way it it ought to be. It's beautiful. And when you, when you see something like this in Scripture, you know that this is clearly a forgiveness that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever experienced that kind of forgiveness, whether you were the giver or the receiver, you know that it's the most healing force in the universe. And this is why our, our Heavenly Father has, has called us to be a people of forgiveness, but It's a difficult business, isn't it? It's one of those conversations that we know, but we don't like to talk about. It's like we know, we all know that we're one day going to die. We just don't want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it. We can't bring ourselves to go to the funeral home and make those arrangements. We just think, I'll just put it off for another day. Now, here's the main point right up front. I'm going to tell you the main thing I want you to know today. And then we'll spend the rest of our time trying to sort it out. Forgiveness is not a method to be learned as much as a truth to be lived. This is what I want us to sort of drill into. I want us to realize some things about forgiveness. I want us to realize some things that we oftentimes have wrong or overlook or don't think about. See, when it comes to forgiveness, if you think about it, the problem with forgiveness is not the same problem that we have with so many other things. It's not that we don't know about forgiveness. See, everyone knows about forgiveness. You you don't ever say to somebody, uh, you don't ever bring up the word forgiveness and then they say, what is that? Everyone knows what it is in theory. It's not a a mystery to us. But I think in there lies a lot of the problem because here's what normally is the case. Either we haven't recognized or acknowledged the unforgiveness that's in our heart or we just simply have refused to make the choice to forgive. Now, these early Christians, I mean, think about the things that they've been thinking about Paul. And think about when Paul shows up just out of the clear blue sky. Hey, guess what, guys? I'm one of you now. Sure you are. Like, you know, what is this, some kind of Trojan horse trick where, you know, we're going to open the gate and let you in and then you're going to kill us all, you know? I mean, hmm. 
And the question that's no doubt in their mind is the same question that's in your mind about the people that you or the person that you and I struggle with forgiving. It's, well, why should I forgive? I mean, really, why? I know what forgiveness is, but, but why should I go down that painful journey? Well, it's a good question. And I think, first of all, you know, we should look at some things that Paul says about forgiveness because Paul, interestingly enough, is the New Testament expert on forgiveness outside of Jesus. And how did he get that way? Well, he got that way because he was somebody who, in the beginning of his life, was the receiver of great forgiveness, and at the end of his life was the granter of great forgiveness. Because if you've read the end of 2 Timothy, the last thing he ever wrote, he's left abandoned by everyone. No one shows up for him, and yet he's not bitter. He knew a whole lot about forgiveness. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, that we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave us. Colossians 3, Paul says we should bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. You see, he makes it very simple. He says experiencing God's forgiveness is where we get the motivation to forgive other people in our life. So what we need to do maybe is have a quick conversation about how we are forgiven. See, a lot of times when we're having a, a, a conversation in our head or we're thinking about the way we're forgiven, we think about this moment. We think about maybe the cross or we think about the moment of our salvation and we think about that being the moment at which we were forgiven, which is true but not completely true because we're not just forgiven in one single singular moment. We're forgiven continually, every day. See, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, if you think about that, what that's telling us is, is that as Christ's followers, we exist in this continual, ever-present, moment-by-moment, everyday state of forgiveness. And who is the one forgiving us? The one person whom we hurt more than anyone else is the one granting forgiveness, the Lord Jesus. So therefore... The Bible would contend that we absolutely, positively, without exception, must be a people who extend forgiveness to others because we live in a continual state of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness, when I say forgiveness, it's not, it's not this, well, I've forgiven people in the past, I've already done that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm done with that. No, no. It's, it's thinking about forgiveness in a different way. It's thinking of it like as God continues daily to forgive me, I likewise must continually be a forgiver. There's a good way to think about it. It's a process. It's a way of life. It's a recognition that daily we need forgiveness. And that is the only way that we will ever find the strength and the motivation to grant it. Now, quickly, some things about forgiveness. I've taught on forgiveness a lot over the years. But I always feel like I need to say a few things in case maybe this is the first time you've ever heard me teach on this topic. Because I don't want you to be confused I want you to understand that forgiving is not forgetting. You know, we have a phrase in our vernacular, forgive and forget. Well, that's impossible. It's impossible. And here's why it's impossible. Primarily because 
you can't forgive and forget because you're going to see him or you're going to see her again. And when you see them, when you see the person who wounded you, you're going to be reminded of the fact that they wounded you, at least for some time. So you can't just force yourself to forget because you're going to go places that are going to remind you of your past hurt. You're going to see things. People are going to say things. There's going to be little reminders that are going to spark in your mind. And then you're going to go back to that place. You know, they remembered everything that Paul had done. They knew everything that he had done. And the scripture tells us both the disciples in Damascus and those in Jerusalem. If you read all of chapter 9. So it's not forgetting. Here's the thing. The, the point is not to forget. The point is remembering rightly. You can't forget, but you have to remember rightly. Which means it's not a, a, a one and done thing. You don't just say, I forgive this person and then it's over with. And I just feel great for the rest of my life. That's not how it works. It's a, it's a process. It's a process. But once we embark on the journey, once we start down the road to forgiveness, then God's work begins to take hold in our hearts. The other thing I want you to know is that when you forgive a person, it doesn't mean that you're allowing them to hurt you again. This is most important for those of you in the room that, that, that have this deep wound and hurt because someone has abused you in your past. By forgiving them, I'm not suggesting that you open your life back up to them or walk back into their life and allow them to yet wound you again. You need to realize common sense applies here. Some people are toxic and some people are abusive and manipulative. And just because you've forgiven them doesn't mean you need to let them right back into your life. And then lastly, when you forgive a person, it doesn't mean that you're granting immunity for all that they've done. You see, when, when you forgive, you're not, you're not someone, the person you're forgiving is not getting a free pass out of jail. It's just a transfer of wrath. It's a transfer of consequences. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, what God would tell us to do is it's not immunity. It's just realizing that when we forgive, we're releasing them from our vengeance. And entrusting them to God's. Let God work it out. Let God deal with it. Let him sort it out. And one last thing, uh, when, I, when I talk about, you know, these things that we need to forgive, I'm not talking about criminal behavior. The Bible makes clear provision for anyone who commits a crime against you for you to prosecute them according to the law, if you so choose to do that. What I'm talking about is personal hurt, not criminal okay all right now let's flip our bibles over to matthew chapter 18 you'll find that on page 1134 in that pew bible just go to matthew 18 flip back to the very first gospel matthew 18 and let's just have a quick conversation about looking at a passage where jesus is going to teach us everything we ever wanted to know about forgiveness and again here is a passage that i've preached through both in Luke and in Matthew. And it seems every time I come back to this passage, I see it with fresh eyes. And I see newness in this passage. And God teaches me and shows me things that I've never seen before. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter is going to bring up this issue of forgiveness to Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. So this is something that's on Peter's mind. And he wants the Lord to speak into his life regarding this issue, which is beautiful because it's exactly how I feel. It's exactly how you should feel about forgiveness. God, help me understand this. 
I'm willing to forgive. I just don't really understand all the things I need to know about it. And so Jesus responds in verse 22 and says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Well, that's helpful, Jesus. What I wanted to know is how much is enough. And what you responded with was something completely different. I think the first thing we need to see about Jesus' response is that Jesus seems to be telling Peter that if you're keeping track of your forgiveness, if you're counting forgiveness, then you're missing the whole point. As we work through this passage, what we're going to see is that if you're keeping track of your forgiveness, you're really not forgiving at all. Because just keeping track of it, keeping count of it, is revealing the fact that you really haven't forgiven. You see, Jesus is illustrating the difference. It's like Peter's talking about one thing and Jesus is talking about another thing. It's the difference between reasonable forgiveness and radical forgiveness. Peter wants to know about reasonable forgiveness. He, he, he's got a question about, hey, well, you know, how many times should I do this? Seven times? That seems reasonable. Well, sure. You know, reasonable forgiveness, that's when there's not that much at stake. It's when you forgive somebody as long as they learn their lesson and promise not to do it again. You know, there's times where we have reasonable forgiveness, so we just forgive and you know, if they promise not to do it again, then everything's fine and we move on. It applies to smaller offenses, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about something totally different. He's talking about a radical forgiveness, a, a 70 times 7 kind of forgiveness. A forgiveness that forgives over and over and over even though it's going to be costly and painful, and even though there's a good chance, maybe a, it's very likely that the person is going to at least try to hurt you again. But you still forgive. It's radical. Radical. It's radical when a person makes the choice to forgive deep wounds. The abuse, the betrayal, the hurt and anguish that we felt. And when we make the choice to forgive, it's radical. So Jesus gives us a parable to understand. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, again, this is a familiar passage, I think, to most of you in the room. We're not going to get into every detail, but some things that I've seen fresh. First of all, 10,000 talents... Just so that you know, that's an insurmountable, incomprehensible amount of money. It's 200 lifetimes of earning. It's millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. It's more money than he could have ever paid back. So, of course, verse 25, he's not able to pay. So the master commanded that he be sold, which would be the fair and just thing, and him and his wife and his children and all that he had, and that payment be made. But the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, the Bible says, and he released him and forgave him his debt. Now, when Jesus talks about forgiveness, 
He's very strategic and specific. He makes sure that we understand this issue of debt. He's telling a story, but he's really teaching us about the way forgiveness works at the same time. He's showing us that anytime somebody wrongs us, there's a debt in our life that's created. See, when somebody takes your innocence, there's a a debt. When somebody steals your dignity, there's a debt. When somebody takes from you what's rightfully yours, there is a debt created. They owe you. And so forgiveness is all about how we receive. It's not about whether or not there's a debt. There's a debt. Whatever happened, there's a debt. It's about how do we respond to the debt. And normally, when a debt's been created, people have two options. Pay up or pay back. That's your two options. That's what normally people deal in the realm of pay up or pay back. Now, here's what we mean by pay up or pay back. See, either you're going to pay up, which means you're going to pay me back what you owe me. You're going to restore unto me what I once had. Well, that's not going to work. And the reason why that's not going to work is because it's impossible. Because it's impossible for anyone to reverse time and to go back and pay you back as if it never happened. That's impossible. And some of you think, well, no, that's possible because what if they just owed me money and they paid me back all the money? Fine. Let's suppose that someone wronged you and stole your money and they come and give you back all your money. How do they pay you back for the trust that they stole? How do they pay you back for the the wounds in your heart that they created? They can't. So the payback idea is a myth. It won't work. You can never pay back. Never. Or pay up. You know, pay up. Give me the money. Pay up for whatever it is you took. Payback is more like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you back, not what I took from you, but I'm going to get you back. I'm going to pay you back for what you did to me. Well, that's not going to work either. Because basically, here's what happens. When we, when we become the purveyors of justice, in other words, when we use vengeance, our own vengeance, it's going to be a catastrophe. And here's why. Because If you've ever been in a situation like this with someone, here's what you know. No two people use the same scale of justice. So when someone wrongs you, you you don't have the same scale. When someone wrongs you, you feel like it was far worse than the person who did the wronging, right? Yes, because you're the one who was the receiver of the wrong. So then when you retaliate, you're going to retaliate worse than the person you're retaliating against thinks is appropriate, which is then going to make them, their scale tilt that way, and then they're going to want to retaliate worse than what your scale, see? And so then back and forth, you can't win because two people will never, ever have the same scale. It will never work. And so paying up or paying back, they're both doomed to fail. But there's a third way. There's a third way that's not paying up or paying back. And it's to pardon. To pardon. And it's the way that the king in this parable chooses to deal with the debt. See, in verse 27, the Bible says that the master or the servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. You see, there is no forgiveness until there's release. First, you have to release them. Then there can be forgiveness. If you're still holding on to it, there's no forgiveness. And so to pardon, to release, to let go... 
Now, it doesn't mean that what we're doing is dismissing what's been done to us. We're not glossing over it. We're not saying that, well, what you did to me was really not that bad. We're not saying that it didn't hurt or it didn't wound me or it didn't. We're not saying any of those things. We're, we're pardoning, but we're calling it what it is. You understand what I'm saying? I want you to think about this with me. In order to pardon, you have to judge the offense for what it is. Now, this usually brings up a problem in the modern evangelicals' heart because there's such confusion about judging. I don't know why. The Bible is so clear, yet 90% of the time that I hear someone quote a verse about judging, they're completely wrong in what they're saying. Completely wrong. To pardon, you have to judge the crime rightly. Luke chapter 6. This will come up on the screen. I want you to see this. There's a lot of places this happens, but here's a clear indicator. Jesus says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and it will be forgiven. Now, Jesus here takes the idea of judging and the idea of forgiveness, and he, he binds them together. He shows you that they're inseparable, that they exist together, that there is no forgiveness apart from judging. Well, what do you mean? Well, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean this ridiculous idea when people say, well, judge not lest you be judged, that Christians shouldn't judge. Do you realize how stupid that is? I mean, just think about how crazy that idea is. Of course you're supposed to judge. If you didn't judge, how could, you be, how could we be accountable to one another? How would, how would we call each other to righteousness? How could we couldn't even encourage each other without judging? You're commanded to judge other brothers and sisters. That's the only way we'd ever know what was going on. And here, you can see you can't forgive without judging. Well, what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, you know intuitively that there are certain things that are wrong, correct? And how do you know that? You know that because God has put his law within you in such a way that whether you believe in him or don't believe in him, there are things that you just know are wrong. Whether you deny him or embrace him, it's just built into every image bearer of Christ. You just know that they're wrong. And aren't some things worth judging? Well, of course. Who would ever want to live in a world with no judging? The judgment-free zone is a myth. You're all in there in your spandex judging each other. Which is exactly why I'm not in there. I'm perfectly capable of doing that to myself at home. So, is it possible to forgive without judging? No. Because then the question would be, well, what are you forgiving? You see... You can't forgive something that's not wrong. Like no one's ever, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Well, it doesn't make any sense. In order to forgive, you must have come to the determination that what was done was wrong. And in order to come to the determination that what was done was wrong, you must judge it. You got it? So you have to judge it. It's embedded in the idea of forgiveness. Is judgment. See, Jesus isn't talking about 
whether or not we judge, which is the way so many people read this. That completely misses the point. He's not talking about whether or not we judge. Jesus is talking about how we judge. And how do we judge? Well, he's saying that it's possible to judge without contempt. See, notice the passage. Don't judge with contempt in your heart. Don't judge with resentment or with bitterness. No. Judge a different way. You see, when he says, forgive as you've been forgiven. He's saying judge it and judge it rightly, but judge it by grace. See, forgiveness is a judgment of grace. That's what it is. It's a judgment of grace. You judge and determine that what was done was truly wrong. You're not, so, so you're not glossing over it. You're not saying that this is so important because if you think that forgiveness is saying that, well, what you did to me wasn't wrong or didn't matter, or did, well, you're, you're never going to forgive. Because you know that that's not true. Forgiveness is saying what you did was wrong. It hurt me. It shouldn't have happened. You never should have done that. But I'm going to extend you grace anyway. Because I've been extended grace. It's a judgment of grace. This is why forgiveness hurts primarily the forgiver. It's the reversed economy of God. It hurts the forgiver, not the forgiven one, because the forgiver bears the price, bears the cost of the forgiveness, even though the wrong was perpetrated by the one who is the recipient of the forgiveness. So when you understand it, then you can rightly think about it and remember it and then think to yourself, my goodness, why would anyone forgive? It's so costly. Why would anyone willingly choose to forgive? Because honestly, if you understand everything I've said so far this morning, then the truth of the matter is it doesn't make any sense. But at least if, if, we, if we know the truth, at least we can come before and we can say, that doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone forgive? Well, there's pain in forgiving. That's true. But if I'm going to answer the question of why would anyone forgive... even though it's costly? It's going to be because to not forgive is more costly. See, notice what happens. You, you know this text, but we'll just sort of look at it a little differently. In verse 28, But the servant went out and found his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, so basically a cold drink. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. For his fellow servant then fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The exact words he said. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay his debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. And so they came and told the king all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Now let's just think for a second about this. Think about what happens to this man. Okay, In the beginning of the story... We hear that he's set free, that he is released and liberated from this insurmountable debt that's, that's upon him, right? But by the end of the story, he is in utter 
prisoner in bondage. All because he's unwilling to pass on to others the forgiveness that he's received. In other words, Jesus is trying to get us to see that not forgiving is far more painful than counting the cost of forgiving. He's not saying that extending forgiveness is not painful and hard. He's saying, but not doing it is so much harder and so much more costly and so much more grievous. You see, there's two central devastating effects of unforgiveness. The first one is, is that when we fail to forgive, we're imprisoned. We're imprisoned by our unforgiveness. You know what the essence of being imprisoned is or incarcerated or in bondage? Just simply... What does that mean? It means that we're we're hopelessly stranded in one place. We're stuck. We're confined to one thing, one area, one domain, one cell. You just keep going back to it and back to it and back to it. You try not to think about it. You try to forget it, but it just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. You're imprisoned to it. You can't get away from it. About the time you think you're away from it, here something triggers it, and again it comes. You were having a great week, and you came to church this morning. You're like, man, you're killing me. And you're thinking, you're right. If I would have known you were going to have this talk, I never would have came today. And right now I'm trying to think of how I could get out of here. Because it imprisons us. And yes, there are times and seasons where we can push through and try to put it out of our minds and try to just push past the the resentment that's down deep inside of us and go on with our life and look like everything's okay on the outside. But inside, the unforgiveness is always gnawing away at our joy. It's eroding the peace that we could have. Because it's there. It never disappears. Let me ask you a question. Has the clock stopped ticking in your life? Yes, you get older... Seasons pass, your family changes, your kids grow, the world is different than it once was, but the clock hasn't moved on your unforgiveness. You're still stuck at some place in your past. You can't shake it. You remember that moment like it was yesterday, don't you? When that was done to you. You remember how you felt. You remember the circumstances. You remember all the details. Just as clear as it was yesterday. You remember because that was the moment that your, your hopes and your dreams were dashed away because of something someone else did. It was the moment you felt the sting of betrayal and disappointment. And if you're honest this morning, you know that every 
moment since that moment has been in some way affected by. You're hurt. It plays some role in the decisions that you make, in the way that you feel, in what you do and don't do, in the fears that want to creep up and rule your life. They're all attached to this moment in your past that's imprisoned you. There's not one sentence in your story that's been written since that time that doesn't bear the marks in some way of that hurt. How do I know so much about this? How do I know what you feel like? Because I've been there. And when you grow up and all of your life growing up, you hated someone with such a deep, burning passion. I hated my father. Hated him. I hated every time someone mentioned the word father. I hated seeing other people having a good relationship with their father. I hated every sporting event I played in and looked in the stands and saw the missing hole where my father could have been. I hated everything about him. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to know his name. I didn't want anything to do with him because he ruined my life. He walked out on me. I didn't do anything to deserve that. Who just wakes up one day and says, mm, I've got these two kids, but I just don't really think I feel like being a father. Like you could understand it if he got cancer and died. You could understand it if even if some, he, he made some bad decisions and ended up incarcerated. But to just freely choose. I don't want you in my life anymore. How do you get over that? Well, I know. Because I have. But listen. It wasn't easy. And I know some of you in this room are still in the, the grip of that pain. Now, I want you to think about pulling the drapes back in the dark cell that unforgiveness has had you in and letting the goodness of the light of God to shine into your cell. Because I don't think that if you're like me, a hundred people could tell you a hundred different ways that what you need to do is get up, unlock the door to that cell and walk out of it. I couldn't do that. And I don't think you can either. I'm not asking you to walk out of the dark cell. I'm asking you to just open the blinds and let the light of God shine into the cell. And I realize that what I'm asking you to do is risky. That I'm tapping into some deep wounds in this room. Things that it'd be a whole lot easier if we just swept them onto the rug and pretended like they didn't exist. But that's not what God wants us to do. It's a process, and it's, for some of you, it's, it's going to be painful. But there's a life 
on the other side that you can't believe. There's health and wholeness. There's a peace and a confidence that comes from finally escaping that hurt and disillusionment. And God wants to give you the grace to move on. He's not asking you to jump up and run out. He's just asking you to let him in. Start the process. Because if you don't, you're going to be imprisoned forever. There's another terrible consequence to refusing to forgive. And believe it or not, it's worse than being in prison. Look at the very last line of the parable in verse 35. Jesus says, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So again, Jesus, in the way only he can, he... He brings two things together that we see as separate, and he says these two things are inseparable. He makes this unbreakable connection between our willingness to receive forgiveness from God and our willingness to grant forgiveness to others. You see... When God saved me when I was 25, I didn't even realize the amount of bitterness that was built up inside of me. It was in the years that followed that looking back, so many things for me were explained. Why I did the things I did and why I was the person that I used to be. But it wasn't like I got saved and then, you know, God just delivered me from that. That's not how that worked. Really, it was when God called me to the ministry. The first thing that I realized was I couldn't shepherd people until I had forgiven my dad. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't even know where to begin. But I knew that it wasn't just saying, oh, I forgive you and going on. I knew that it was much more than that. And so I began the journey. And it was in that process that I realized this connection between receiving and giving forgiveness. I realized that what I had been doing was keeping God at bay. I would let him in, but only so far. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the consequence of unforgiveness is worse than being in prison by a long shot. Because the consequence here of of refusing to forgive is being cut off. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But what Jesus is saying is that if we we choose the path of unforgiveness, then we cut ourselves off from receiving the forgiveness of God. To which you might say, "Well, well, Tony, isn't God always forgiving? Just always loving, always patient, always kind, granting forgiveness. Yes. Jesus isn't making a threat here. He's simply describing a reality. See, what he's saying is, is, 
He's saying that getting and giving forgiveness flow through the same channel. The same channel. In Matthew chapter 6, he said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Have you ever noticed that? See what that says? It says that you forgiving and being forgiven are connected. They flow through the same channel. So I want you to think about forgiveness like breathing. Okay? It's impossible to inhale the forgiveness of God and not exhale forgiveness to others. It's impossible because they flow through the same channel. So if I breathe in the forgiveness of God, if I refuse to exhale, what does that mean? You don't have to be a pulmonologist to figure this out. You ain't breathing in another breath until you breathe out. So what the Bible is saying is that when you choose unforgiveness, when you say, I'm in Christ, but I unforgive, I'm, I'm not going to forgive, what you're saying is that you've, you've breathed in the forgiveness of God as salvation, and you've been holding your breath ever since. You got God like this. And until you breathe out, He'll never come another inch closer. You think about the man in the story Jesus tells. Think about the fact that he's not cut off from receiving God's forgiveness because God is withholding it from him, is he? See, this isn't a threat. It's a reality. Even in the parable, how is the man... Cut off from the compassion of the king. It's not because the king is withholding compassion. It's because the man is withholding compassion. Therefore, the result of that is the king withholds compassion. See, God would never do that. He would never withhold compassion from you. You are withholding his compassion by withholding it from others. The point of the story, this parable, it's not a parable teaching us that we ought to forgive other people because God loves them and they're created in His image and that He forgives them. That's nice and that's true, but that's not the point of this parable. This parable is not teaching us that we need to forgive other people because God loves them or has forgiven them. No. The point of this whole parable is that we should forgive others because God has forgiven me. Because I'm the one that had the debt. I spent all my life building a case against a person that I didn't even know and never saw. And, and all my life I believed that I was the one who had been so wounded and so hurt. And what I realized is that in reality, I was the one who had so wounded and hurt my Savior. I was the one who had spent my days blaspheming His name. I was the one who lived every moment of my life as if He didn't exist. It was me. It was me. I needed forgiveness. I'm the one who's in debt. You're the one who's in debt. We're the one who has great need. I'm the one the king had mercy on. 
See, the moment that we finally take our eyes off the debt that someone else owes us, we can then see the debt that we owe. It's far easier to spend all your time obsessing over the debt someone else owes than your own debt. It's easier, but it's not helpful, and there's no healing in it. You see, because, I mean, let's be honest. There's some of you in this room that the debt someone owes you is, is like tens of millions of dollars. It's horrible and painful and real. But you see, the Bible comes along and says things like in Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. In other words, God is a limitless ocean of grace. That's what the Bible's saying. He's a limitless ocean of grace. And the truth of the matter is, is that one person, I just remember this aha moment when I realized that one person could not possibly amass the debt that they owe me that could compare to the culmination of all the debts that I owed across the span of my life. You see, because just because my sin was spread across many people, it was still all perpetrated against the same one. And so there was no way that one person had hurt me as much as I, if you add all the things that I had done wrong together, had hurt God. No matter what it is. No matter how bad. It can't be. And you just realize that there's no limit to His grace. And that he's willing and able to drown all of the misery and the bitterness of our unforgiveness in a sea of his grace and mercy. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that that's the God of the scripture? So, so who, who owes you something? Who has hurt you? Who has abused you? Who has broken you? Who has stolen from you? Who has caused you great loss? Who is it for you? Who is it for me? That's the question we need to ask. Who is it? Who is it for me? Who's the person that I haven't been able to get out of my mind this morning? You know, it may be a random coincidence... But have you ever seen more people get up and walk out of a Sunday morning service than have this morning? Have you noticed? Like 20 people have just gotten up and walked out and haven't come back. They're, and I see people peeking in the windows of the doors out there. You don't think this is real? 
It's real. It's real. And I guarantee you, it has a whole lot to do with who you are today than you think it does. But freedom... will have an infinitely greater impact on your life than you ever think it could. So who is it for you? Will you release them today? Will you just start by making a choice? It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be this one miraculous moment and it's all going to go away. But it, it starts with a choice. The choice to forgive. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose to forgive today. I'm going to make the choice to release every hostage that I'm holding in my heart. I'm going to let them free. And in doing so, we're going to set ourselves free by the power of Christ. Choose today to say, I forgive. Let's stand and bow our heads.